Today's scripture is from Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in, of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Emily. And thank you, Marie, for that wonderful, uh, Marie and Velma both, for that wonderful children's sermon. I have to confess, it's a little hard to get up and follow Marie. She is so interesting and such a great speaker. My daughter told me, uh, my, my wife told me that our daughter, who has two children, uh, four and almost two, she said they love to listen to Marie. They live out of town. But what about after Marie's message? Well, they kind of tune out after that. So anyway, it is so good, again, to have you all with us, both online for our service and here in the sanctuary. I want to say thank you uh, this morning for the way you have continued to support our church in this very unusual year. Because of your faithful giving, we have not had to reduce any of our missions emphasis or support or giving. And uh, as, as a small thank you, one of our missionaries this week sent us a picture of a car that they were able to purchase. And I think you'll see it before you. Uh, Maverick and Amy Honig are working at the Challenge Farm in Kenya. And um, we were able to give a, a gift toward the purchase of that car to help them out. And we were able to do that because of your continued faithful giving to our church. We support missions and missionaries out of your tithes and offerings, and we just are so grateful for your continued faithfulness. And on behalf of the Hunnigs, thank you for your faithful, faithful giving. I'd like to pray again this morning before we get into God's Word, just because I know that many uh, are struggling in these times with a feeling of isolation or loneliness and uh, challenging times, but I'm praying God will use our time together this morning to bring encouragement and renewal of faith. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we come in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. How we thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit, the one whom you call the helper, the encourager, the one who would bring renewal to our souls and remind us of your words and of your ways. And I pray today, Father, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, your word, and as we hear your word, that you would renew our faith, that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us of your nearness, your love, your goodness. And I especially pray for renewal of hope 
for those who've felt isolated, discouraged, or depressed. Bring your joy today, Lord, we ask in your great name. Amen. Well, today, in our one-story series in which we're looking at the unity of the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, we're really near the end of the Bible now, and we're looking at a book that I think is perhaps the biblical book that shows more clearly than any other the link between Old Testament shadows and New Testament substance. And that is the beautiful New Testament book of Hebrews. As the name of the book suggests, it was written to Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, early Christian believers. The author in the book of Hebrews is never identified, so we will just refer to that person as the writer of the book of Hebrews. It would seem from the content of this letter to the Hebrews that these early Christians who had come to faith out of a background of Judaism and embraced Jesus as their Messiah, that they were being persecuted for their faith. In chapter 10, the latter part, the writer notes that they had even had their property plundered. They had been publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And yet throughout the letter, the writer's encouraging them to remain steadfast and faithful to Jesus Christ. Apparently, they were tempted to return to the former ways of worship in Judaism, the Old Testament sacrifices and uh, forms of worship there. Uh, perhaps it's because Judaism was a protected religion under Roman law and Christianity was not. But to those tempted to return, the writer of the book of Hebrews is emphasizing certain truths. And one is this, the law is the Old Testament law, provided shadows that looked ahead to something greater than themselves. The writers calling the Hebrew Christians not to return to the shadows because now they had the true substance. Verse 1 of chapter 10 reads, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, think of a shadow as a foreshadowing, something that foreshadows something to come. The Old Testament laws, the Old Testament sacrifices, the forms of worship, they foreshadowed something greater. They pointed ahead to something coming, something greater than themselves. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul wrote it this way, writing to the Colossian Christians, telling them, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. That is, don't let someone put you back under Old Testament dietary laws about food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, holy days. Don't seek those ways to gain your acceptance with God. He continues, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now that you've got the substance, why would you return to the shadows? That, I think, is the, the point the Apostle Paul is making. The emphasis in the book of Hebrews is all about the superiority of this new covenant, this new relationship with God, and it's specifically the superiority of Jesus to all of the shadows 
in the Old Testament. In fact, if there's one key word in the book of Hebrews, it's probably would, it probably would be the word superior or the word better. For example, Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. The book begins this way, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. In other words, the prophets were mere human beings. Jesus is the creator of the world. He goes on to say that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yes, the prophets were great. They were people called by God. Jesus is far greater. He's superior to the prophets. Jesus is superior to the angels. It seems that in Judaism, there was an emphasis on angels. One commentator says there was almost an obsession with angels and with their importance. And so in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, the emphasis of that chapter is the great superiority of Jesus over all angelic beings. And in chapter 1, verse 13, the writer says, To which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? In other words, Jesus is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, waiting until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet, not angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. In Judaism, Moses was the greatest of leaders. He was the one who brought the law who gave the Ten Commandments to the people. He was God's spokesperson, spokesperson to the Jews. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Is much more glory is the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is superior. Jesus is superior to priests. The writer writes, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The priests in the Old Testament were normal human beings whom God called. They had their own failures. They had their own sins. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, but not Jesus. Jesus, though he's been tempted in every way, just like we have been, never sinned. It's really important to understand something about who Jesus was. Jesus was both fully God and fully human. This was a big debate in the early Christian church, and it gave rise to a creed we've sometimes used in our church called the Nicene Creed that affirms that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. Because Jesus was human, He could take our place. He could die our death on the cross. Because he was God, his sacrifice there was of infinite value. He knew no sin, and yet he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he's lived the human life. Finally, Jesus is superior to sacrifices, all the Old Testament sacrifices. They merely pointed ahead to something, and the writer of Hebrews says, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's writing the Hebrews, many of whom were tempted to go back under that old form of worship, saying, Jesus is far, far superior to that. 
The Old Testament sacrifices provided a temporary covering for sin, and they foreshadowed something that was to come, the one great single sacrifice for all times. And the writer goes on to explain that Jesus became this final sacrifice by the offering of himself. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, the offering of himself, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is never again a need to sacrifice a ram or a goat or a bull, an animal to atone for sins. Jesus has done it all. His death on the cross was the final sacrifice. He was, in the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice the words, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That doesn't mean that you and I who have embraced Jesus can never stumble in sin again because we all know that we do. What it means is that Jesus has done the work necessary in order to present us as forgiven, righteous before God by his own sacrifice for us. He did it. He completed it. And then thirdly, the writer tells us that Jesus brings us in to a new covenant relationship with God. And we read in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 10, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. So you see the case this writer's making. There's no need to offer sacrifices for sin anymore. God predicted it, and now he's done it in Jesus. Now, you notice that the words on the screen are in quotation marks. That is because these words are quoted from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived hundreds of years before Jesus, and Jeremiah was one of the great Jewish prophets. And I want to read a few words for you from Jeremiah chapter 31. And you won't see the words on the screen, but, I, but I'll ask you to listen carefully, carefully to these words from Jeremiah. I'm just going to read four verses. But notice how many times in these verses God says, I will. The prophet Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I think I counted seven times in those four verses that God says, I will. This is the prediction of what we call the gospel. 
the new covenant, what Jesus did. And here's the thing I want to stress about it. God says seven times, I will. The gospel of Jesus is not about God does a little and we do a little and we meet in the middle. The gospel is all about God saying, I will, and sending Jesus who accomplishes this for us once and for all. Now, the writer of Hebrews, quoting Jeremiah, makes two incredible declarations, and they are these. Number one, I will put my law on their hearts, my laws on their hearts, and write them on their minds. If you've embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord, this is what God has done for you. I'll put my laws on their minds and write them on the hearts. It's not like the Old Testament where Moses brought a slate of laws the, the Jews were to obey. God's doing something different. He's writing them, his laws, that is, in our hearts. What does that mean? I think what it means is that God gives his Holy Spirit to those who've come to him through faith in Jesus and the Holy Spirit creates within us the willingness and the power to do God's will. He gives us the willingness to do His will and the power to do His will. Sometimes over the years I've talked to people who were reluctant to receive Jesus as their Lord, reluctant to embrace the gospel. And they were sincere, at least sincere sounding, when they said something like this, I just don't think I could live the Christian life, and I don't want to be a hypocrite. Now, to a person like that, I would say, first of all, it's good that you don't want to be a hypocrite. It's good that you want to be sincere as a Christian, and if you come to God through faith in Jesus, you really want to come. You really want to follow Him as your Lord. And certainly, there needs to be the willingness to do that. The willingness to make him Lord of your life when you come. But here's the thing I would encourage a person like that to understand. God also provides the power and the ability to do his will when we receive him. He gives us the ability to obey him by putting the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's a matter for us of acknowledging our weakness and our need and yielding to the presence and the power of His Spirit to walk with Him. Not that it's not a struggle to live a life of obedience. We struggle against sin, but we struggle with the power of the Spirit within. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then another thing that the writer of Hebrews declares is just remarkable, remarkable because of what Jesus has done. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Do you ever dwell on sins you've committed in the past and, and feel somewhat unworthy, even though you know Jesus died for them, even though you know he has forgiven them? Do you sometimes find it hard to forget? I do sometimes. I think many of us struggle that way. And it's helpful at times like that to reflect not on what we've done on the past, not on anything we've done to try to make amends, but the completeness of what Jesus has done. God is making a declaration. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And the writer of Hebrews says, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. 
Don't try to atone for something Jesus has already atoned for. Now, at this point in Hebrews chapter 10, there's a change. The writer of Hebrews all of a sudden goes from instruction to application. And the next word we read following verse 18 where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin, is verse 19 and it begins, therefore. Therefore, in light of what Jesus has done, the, the fullness, the completeness of what Christ has done, he continues, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the writer's going to tell us to do three things. Each one is introduced by the words, let us. The first one is this, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, here's what the writer's saying. You Jewish Christians who've embraced Jesus, you remember under the old covenant when Moses went up to get the law on the mountain, God said, don't let anyone come anywhere near. No one is to come near the mountain where my presence comes lest they die. Do you remember when the priest went into the holy place to offer sacrifices? No one was to come near lest they die. Now, because of what Jesus has done, everybody who's embraced him, draw near, draw near. In fact, earlier in the book, the writer will say, because of Jesus and who he is, and because he's a merciful and faithful high priest who represents us before God's throne, come with confidence, come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in your time of need. You can come directly before God's throne, and it is no longer for you a throne of judgment, but a throne of grace. Come boldly before the throne of grace. The writer says it differently here. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. You who have embraced Jesus can come with confidence. Let us draw near. Secondly, let us hold fast our confession to people who were tempted to forsake the faith because of their persecution, because of the difficulties of following Jesus in a largely Jewish and Roman world where they were a persecuted minority, the writer is saying, hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering. Why? Because God is faithful. He's faithful to you. And then thirdly, let us stir up one another. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up one another. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the point is simply this. I think the writer's saying, help each other in your struggle to maintain faithfulness to the Lord. Stir up one another to love and good works. The fact is we need to help each other and we need help from each other. God has designed us that way as members of the one body of Christ. Without one another, we all gravitate toward discouragement. And so we're called to encourage one another. And I don't have to tell all of you that we are in a time right now, then that's 
when that's needed like no other time. I mean, the writer's going to go on to say, don't forsake meeting together. And right now, it's difficult, even impossible, for many to join us in meeting together. But we can still encourage one another. Now's a good time to ask yourself, is there someone the Lord would have me encourage this week? Just call them, pray for them, pick up the phone. Somebody you'd have me encourage. Stir up one another to love and good works. Now, now, what are the good works that we're supposed to be stirring up one another toward? I want to close with this. In Hebrews chapter 13, as the, the writer of Hebrews comes to the end of the letter, the very last chapter, the writer begins giving us some very practical things, some practical good works that followers of Jesus are to do. Things to which we should encourage one another. As we stir one another up to love and good deeds, these are the good deeds that we're to be stir stirring one another toward, helping one another with. And there are five, just very briefly. Number one, brotherly love. That's a short, simple verse, an entire verse. Let brotherly love continue. And by the way, this is one of the easiest Greek, New Testament Greek words you'll ever learn. You know what the, the word, the Greek word here is? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Philos, a Greek word for love. Uh, brotherly love, let it continue. Because love always has been, always will be the identifying mark of a follower of Jesus who said a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this, all people will know you're my disciples. If you love one another, let brotherly love continue. It's of the utmost importance. Number two, hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The word hospitality is is somewhat similar to the word brotherly love. The word for brotherly love is Philadelphia. The word for hospitality is philozania, love of strangers, the Greek word xenos for a stranger. Now, who's a stranger? And, and, and entertaining strangers, is it really possible you could entertain angels unawares? In biblical times, when people traveled, there were not hotels everywhere like there are in our day. There were not restaurants on every corner. And often Christians traveling from town to town were called to open their homes and show hospitality to others, especially those traveling, doing uh, missions work or work for the faith. So this is more than just having your friends over for dinner, as good as that is. <laughs> You probably know your friends well enough to know that they're, you're not entertaining any angels unawares. But love of strangers, people who are different from ourselves. We do this, I think, when we show hospitality to internationals, when we help refugees. When you have an international student who's studying here and doesn't have family here, have them over and minister to them. Good works of the new covenant, brotherly love, hospitality. A third one, care for the imprisoned and incarcerated. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. 
This is a reference, I think, to fellow believers because it says, since you're also in the body. Believers in this time were being put in prison for their faith. And it's a call to encourage them, to support them. Number four, shifting gears a little bit. Good works of the new covenant, honoring marriage. The writer says this strongly, and I think it's one of the strongest words in the whole New Testament on the need to uphold the covenant of marriage as God has given it. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep high regard for the covenant of marriage. Avoid adultery. And it comes with a warning, a warning. The grace of the new covenant does not mean we can go ahead and sin without consequences. The book of Hebrews has very strong warnings about willful, deliberate sin. The grace of the new covenant means God gives us power not to continue in sin. And the writer of the Hebrews makes the case strongly for honoring the marriage covenant. And then fifth, being free from the love of money. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. You know, there's some people who guard themselves carefully against verse 4, adultery, but give no thought to verse 5, love of money. And yet the writer says, keep your life from this. Guard your life from this. This implies caution. A definite discernment of the danger of the love of money, which the Apostle Paul says is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money can take subtle control over the human heart. That's why Paul calls covetousness, greed, idolatry. And notice the cure for that kind of idolatry, that kind of uh, love of money, contentment. Christian contentment is, is based on the subject of that final sentence, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian contentment is based on Jesus, knowing his value, knowing who he is. Here again we see the words, I will. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will write my laws on your minds and on your hearts. I will remember your sins and iniquities no more. Jesus, before he went to the cross, told his followers not to be troubled, not to let their hearts be troubled, but to believe in him. And he said, I will come again. I will take you to be with me. The gospel is all about the person of Jesus knowing his superiority, his greatness, and loving him. Now, before we leave this incredible book of Hebrews, I want to read to you a benediction, a blessing that comes at the very end of the book. The writer gives this blessing to those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus. This is for you who know him. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, 
equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray about this now. Father, we come now in the name of Jesus, and I pray that this blessing would be upon your people, that you, the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, would equip your people with everything good for doing your will. Father, I pray for any who have not yet embraced the salvation of Jesus offered in the gospel, who have not yet become a beneficiary of the completed work he accomplished on the cross, that today that person would say, Lord, I believe, and Lord, I receive by your power and grace. May I follow you as my Savior and Lord from this day forward. Lord, encourage your people to walk faithfully with you. And we ask this in your great name.